Can we talk something else? Can, can we talk about something else? Hello, out there. The following is a revamped version of a true story I had archived in the padded room of Patreon. An intimate little offering that I felt deserved to be dusted off and fixed up a little. An episode that made me feel crazy as I wrote it and I'm sure at times will show. Dark Topic isn't always going to be serial killers and despicable crimes. Sometimes I want to get a little more creative. Weird. So in that spirit, I hope you'll join me for a visit to early Bedlam. I have many vivid memories from my childhood. I've learned that this is odd from my friends who seem to only remember snippets. But I can remember entire mornings, afternoons, and evenings. I often recall being recently turned four years old and playing out in front of our house in the snow, a house that was surrounded by a mental hospital, a jail, and a church. I remember rolling a snowball into the base for a snowman. I rolled it until I could roll it no more, then turned to look at our home. My mom and dad were standing in the window with their arms around each other. It's the only good memory I have of the two of them together. The rest is pure chaos. I think that what preserves that memory is the frame that surrounds it. The screaming, the fighting, the being awoken in the night and having to run out the door for help. All these impactful parts of my early childhood create a dark, swirling frame about this one image I have of stability early on. They say you remember the oddest things the things that are unusual, that stand out, the outstanding things, how about, and for me, seeing my parents happy together was outstanding for my young self. I wanted things to stay like that, but I knew it would not last, so I took a picture with my mind so as not to forget it. This is how we make memories, obviously, but the quality of the picture taken, the clarity, the durability of the imprint it makes, is a direct result of its impact on you. Around this same time, I believe the seed was planted in my mind that eventually grew into this podcast. Leroy and I grew up to some extent on a school bus, one that our mom drove. After our parents split, she took on evening and weekend charters from time to time. One in particular that involved transporting girl guides into my hometown's mental hospital to sing songs for the patients. When I asked my mom about this memory, she recalled that there had been many trips and that navigating the sprawling hospital grounds was always stressful. She'd heard tales of patients jumping in front of the buses that ran special routes through there, the type of tragedy that never makes the newspapers. The stories we were told are never truly the news. They're just 
what arrived on the table. In the case of this mental hospital, rumor of the daily madness would leak out through the staff and eventually transform into pulsating legend that existed in the imagination of the surrounding public. My town was full of secrets, full of rumor. A haunted town, if there ever was one. And its strange heartbeat was this mental hospital that existed like a factory of strangeness down by the lake. A factory that collected the broken from miles around and tested the strength of the glue that hopefully held said broken together after a dose of therapy, reflection time, and medication. The testing ground eventually being the streets of my hometown, then the halfway houses. But before the air got that fresh, it would be the cottages. The cottages outside of the mental hospital. This trip, I mentioned, the one with the cargo of girl guides that took us into the heart of this matter, was our first. And there were more, as I learned, but this particular day stands out as the representative for all. I remember peering through the distorted glass beside our enormous bus seat with the duct tape patches. The window was the type that had to be slid down by pressing stiff releases on either side. And as it was summer, ours was in fact open, though we did not dare stick our curious faces out like the girl guides behind us. Daring girls who tempted like the cookies they sold, unknowingly passing within reach of the occasional doped-up reforming predator who roamed this human zoo. The cottages we passed had signs out front. There was a barber shop, a bowling alley, a prayer center. But mostly there were the dorms of the deluded, those deemed fairly harmless. Leroy and I laid low in our surveillance at the start as we took in the strange little micro-community through two panes of fingerprint-laden window. Everywhere, it seemed, people were completing chores. The result of this being overly manicured lawns, meticulously swept sidewalks, forever fresh paint on every structure. The overwhelming sense was that we had entered a miniature village come to life, a place that had been blown up like a balloon. The people, expanded then animated, and through the process clearly having suffered one form of malfunction or another. Everywhere, just like in the town outside this mockery, were the haunting black walnut trees, some stunted and spread wide, their branches reaching out, as if an attempt to keep the patients corralled, their putrid fruit dropping to the ground like stink bombs that were oft used as summertime snowballs by the town kids. If you've never seen the black walnut, it's the size of a tennis ball, a thing that is usually rotting by the time one picks it up to throw at another, leaving a skunky-smelling mustard-yellow paint spatter on their clothes. Later, when this strangely magical place had shut down, its purpose swallowed up into the main building like a tongue pulling in a cocktail of pills, I'd spend time with my teenage friends, breaking into the boarded-up cottages and facilities. There were tunnels beneath these deserted structures, Tunnels that you needed balls the size of the black walnuts that occasionally clanged off the tin roof above to walk through alone. They led everywhere on the grounds, except the one back to the main facility, which was bricked off. One of these tunnels led to a bathtub bolted to the floor that we all felt uneasy around. Not uneasy enough to sit in on a dare, of course. I learned later that these baths were likely used for hydrotherapy, the use of warm or cold baths to treat patients sometimes for long periods. Thankfully, we never came across some of the other therapeutic contraptions I later learned of, contraptions used to spin patients for hours until their minds cut out. 
I know for certain that my group of friends would have at some point strapped me in by force. Mostly we'd smoke weed and cause general mischief by throwing bottles down the lanes of the old bowling alley or daring one another to lay in the drawers of the morgue, which some of us actually did. Not me, I could barely participate in the found wheelchair races we conducted down the warped, graffitied hallways, crashing through fronds of wallpaper that hung from the walls like strips of dead skin. Knowing that someone who'd suffered once sat in those old wheelchairs gave me the creeps. Wheelchairs have always given me the creeps. The group homes for children I later worked at would collect in the basement as the residents passed on. A wheelchair graveyard. Kid-sized wheelchairs. It was always at night when we explored the abandoned miniature town of the psychiatric hospital, which of course led to claims amongst my group of friends that the place was haunted. I myself heard strange things in there, saw a few shadows shift, but I had to blame that on the acid, unfortunately. It's gone now, torn down after being deemed a hazard. My experiences as a teenager at the facility were much darker and anxiety-ridden than my first introduction which I'll get this runaway train back chugging alongside now. Slip it through a tunnel beneath this odd offering, like from a nightmare back to a strange dream. The place I saw from the bus windows as a child was alive and a bustling carnival of oddities, impossible to look away from as Leroy and I observed it, now past our mom's driving seat in front of us and through the bus's wide windshield. As a child, you're taught not to stare at anything unusual, which in this case would have meant focusing on the seat in front of us. An enormous woman in a gown that looked as if her caregivers had cut a hole in a banquet dinner tablecloth and draped it over her, waved with misplaced exuberance as we passed. Her face had the mask-like quality medication lens, dead eyes between overdressed lids with an elastic cherry-lipped smile stretched across her misshapen jaw. She had a club foot which she swung to gain momentum and her body jerkily followed its lead as she followed us for a few heaving steps before realizing the bus wasn't slowing. When she stepped into the street to give chase, her face now contorted in an expression of ferocious heartbreak, a couple of orderlies dressed in bright whites appeared from thin air and guided her back towards one of the units. The girl guides behind us chattered incessantly at one another, completely ignoring the eye-blasting humanity milling about. Everywhere, was odd. A man in a brown, ill-fitting suit spoke sincerely to a maple tree. We cruised by a bench where a young woman sat and carefully separated a strand of hair before her eyes, then yanked it out of her scalp. It was all too much, and eventually my brother and I huddled together and giggled whisper as the girl guides continued their bubbly drone as though this were just another field trip. They were used to it, I suppose and as my childhood wore on, the facility would become a normal part of my life as well. We lived nearby, and the patients who received day passes walked everywhere around our home which sat near the downtown core, at one time getting so close that Leroy and I were greeted by one who was receiving care at home, one who stood amongst the sunflowers outside our kitchen's bay window one morning, looking in, an old woman who had once babysat us before becoming mentally ill and now it focused on our little unit as she descended into madness. Standing there, face shining with dew, gaunt, pale, white-haired and wild-eyed, backlit by the morning sun and surrounded by the turning faces of sunflowers, in her nightgown. 
Good morning, Muriel. Time to go home, Muriel. Leroy kept a journal at one point, logging the activities of the most prominent day patients in our area. I'd give anything to read some of that to you, but it's lost. We were curious kids, surrounded by old men with lobotomy scars and stiff walks, young men with strange outfits and loping gaits, women with hoodies on in the summer, chain-smoking on park benches as we played hide-and-seek about them. I once came upon one of these women defecating like a dog in the park. I drove my bike right past her as she did her business between some trees, and we locked eyes, hers clearly communicating the phrase, Do you mind? As I almost collided with a man dressed in a cemetery suit, a dirty, ill-fitting thing. He was waiting for her to finish, I suppose. Leroy took note of, and later nicknamed this man, Sure Smiles a Lot. Because he sure smiled a lot. The abnormal was the norm in our hometown. I remember an incident that occurred in our street at a halfway house. A recently discharged psych patient hung himself from a tree in the backyard. This mystified me. The house was a three-minute walk from our place. I was in high school at the time, and soon after this suicide, I was offered a job experience program. I enrolled and approached the home as a possible placement. I walked up to the house, which had a porch out front. These halfway houses blended so well into our community that they were marked as such with bright green artificial turf on their porches to guide their residents to the right home at curfew time. A skeletal woman was smoking on the steps, and an older man sat in a chair tucked in the corner of the porch with his head between his legs. I asked the woman if she knew who I could speak to about volunteering there. She spit at me and told me to fuck off, and so ended my dream to work with the mentally disturbed. I realized quickly that I was too young and inexperienced to have any real impact on that genre of social services, so I sought out a palliative care home to get my feet wet. Pun intended. Care homes are a shock to the system. Body fluids are constantly escaping the patients into bags or diapers or onto the shoes of staff. This particular home provided care for about eight patients at a time, and the majority were people in the late stages of multiple sclerosis. It was a real eye-opener, to say the least. I was 15, and I believe I was catching the tail end of a pretty loose era in healthcare, which makes my experience worth noting. This private nursing home doesn't exist anymore, and I doubt there will ever be another like it. I spent my first week smoking cigarettes inside with a tiny 90-year-old Jamaican lady whom was placed there for general care. She would sit on a couch looking out the front window, smoking and making flowers from the discarded butts, peeling away the outer layer and fluffing out the inside to make something disgustingly beautiful. These cigarette flowers decorated the furniture around her little spot in the home. She had one in her hair, the stem a toothpick. She spoke constantly, and I did her the service of simply listening. I still remember the saying that she would repeat often, usually as another resident was wheeled by in a chair moaning, Cuh-woke. Gather thee roses while ye may, old time is still flying. The same flower that smiles today, tomorrow will be dying. She was a real treat, a relic, one of those rare older folks who was living history. We had a falling out when I tired of her asking me to smuggle her cigarettes. She was on a limit, 
and I soon found myself assisting with the higher-needs clients. Almost every employee other than the one head nurse of each shift was there as a result of committing a petty felony. They were there to do community service. Everybody smoked like chimneys, a practice which would immediately shut a place down today. It really wasn't credible. I mean, we wouldn't go for cigarette breaks, we'd go for joint breaks. MS can be sped up by smoking, yet here as one of our duties we'd hold cigarettes to the lips of residents who could not move their bodies due to the late stage of their illness. Things were always going missing, like medication, packs of smokes, petty cash. The house was full of shoplifters, after all. But despite the strange and dreary picture I'm painting, the place was full of laughter and love. The residents were happy for the most part. The staff became their family most times, their actual family only showing up for 15 minutes on a birthday and eventually with buckets of tears at the funeral. This is no exaggeration. I loved it there, and I wouldn't change my experience, but for such a high-stakes situation, it always felt dangerously lax. People would often die in that house, and when they did, we'd wash the body of our short-time friend, the morgue would pick them up, and a new resident would arrive two weeks later. It was a business at heart, I suppose, though it was advertised as a cottage of comfort, a place to live out your days in some peace, surrounded by some loving care. After a couple of years here, things began to go downhill. There were whispers of fraud being committed against clients, and it began to feel like a place I needed to get away from before something bad happened and I became associated with it. The place doesn't exist today, and out of respect for those who are involved with it, I won't mention its name. It's just hard to imagine now that a place like that existed once, and not that long ago either. We're talking close to 25 years past. My point is, if things could be that lax in a facility in 1994, 95, 96, what were they like in the 60s or the 30s? Worst of all, what about in the beginning? I was hired as a full-time lead staff when I was 22 at a group home for young adults with disabilities that I mentioned in the Kevorkian episode. Some residents were placed there by child services after having been abused by family or foster parents. I often had to attend uh, meetings at child welfare where I would be behind a one-way painted glass, observing a father play with his child who he had previously molested, making sure that his hands stayed where they should be. Most simply had become too much to handle. The odd resident could be violent. All could be trying. I was bitten, punched, vomited on, sprayed with feces, to be fair, mostly in an indirect manner. There was a lot of love in this place, too. That's what kept me there until I was 30. I often thought about what it must have been like for similar kids back when there was less empathy, education, medication, funding, and therapeutic intervention available. There were many times where I or another staff had to excuse ourselves and go outside to have a cigarette calm down as a client had pushed one of us to the limit. There were full of brawls in that place. We had to sit back and just take the punches and let them wear themselves out. Cart them to another room, lock them in a bed, let them rail out their frustrations. The question occurs to me that if that level of frustration could be reached by us while working with disabled youth, what was it like working with psych patients of the criminally insane who were institutionalized for committing atrocities way back when? Today it's pretty regimented. But in the 17th century, as you'll hear, it was a free-for-all. Rosetta Stone, everybody. You know, for a long time, I've been wanting to go to Japan. But the thing holding me back is that I'm 
intimidated by the language. And that's why I've been going pretty hard at the Rosetta Stone service. I want to be able to take my girl to Japan, a place that she's always wanted to go, and suddenly just start speaking fluent Japanese at the restaurant. That's my goal. <laughs> Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on a desktop or as an app, and it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. It's been a trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users, 25 languages offered. It's fast language acquisition. Rosetta Stone immerses you in a bunch of ways. Uh, there's an intuitive process where you pick up the language naturally, first with words and phrases, then sentences. They have the speech recognition feature. Built-in true accent gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Uh, it's like having a personal trainer for your accent. It's convenient, and it's an amazing value, especially with this offer here. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Dark Topic listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. All right, everybody, Badlands food. I've been thinking about getting a dog with my little family. We're about to introduce a dog, I believe, at some point here in I have an interest in how we're going to be treating said dog. And it occurs to me, you know, that many dogs suffer from health issues. And with Badlands Food, actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health. She's looking at their food. What she discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that by just adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone could do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. It caught my attention, and as I'm about to uh, get a dog, I think that I'm going to use this service, so I thought I'd share it with the audience as well. Uh, I know many of you have dogs. If you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash darktopic and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D.com slash darktopic to check it out. Badlandsfood.com. The infamous institution widely known as Bedlam comes to life in Bishopsgate, London, England, the year 1247. Alderman and former sheriff Simon Fitzmary donates land to the visiting Bishop of Bethlehem to have on it built a monastery, wherein future members of the Church of Bethlehem could seek hospitality during their visits to the area, the poor could seek refuge, and the collection of charity could be undertaken in support of the Crusader Church. The original structure was named the Priory of the New Order of St. Mary of Bethlehem. Former Sheriff Fitzmary, who spearheaded this project, claimed to have been guided by the Star of Bethlehem after becoming lost in the field while fighting in the Crusades as a soldier, thus his affinity for this particular church. The Priory functioned as intended for a time, but was soon designated as mainly a place for the sick and destitute to seek refuge, and eventually became known as Bethlehem Hospital then eventually Bethlehem Hospital, 
before its final bastardization in which it became known as Bedlam, a word that was birthed from this institution and came to represent uproar, chaos, and confusion. It's unclear exactly when Bedlam became known as a hospital, but we can assume it was a gradual process. The word hospital was used loosely and could well mean hostile as well back then. My guess is that it had multiple function. It continued to accept and distribute charities, but mutually it would take in anyone from the weary traveler to the homeless pauper found taking a bath in a pig's trough, scrubbing himself down with a broom head. This early facility is said to have had around 30 separate rooms, with either a rotting bed or hay to sleep on. There were no fireplaces early on, so it must have been a one-star stay, as the building was also built over a sewer drain that consistently blocked with waste. As the building became more and more flooded with the surrounding areas mentally and physically ill, and presumably the waste of said ill, the full-time function of the facility became caring for the sick. It is widely believed that this transformation completed itself around the year 1377. A visit from the Charity of Commissions in 1403 led to the first recorded documentation and peak inside of Bedlam. The report states that six of the patients were clearly insane, hinting that the building was well on its way to becoming an asylum. There were manacles on the wall and floor of each room. Also observed were stocks, which many of you surely know was a medieval device used to immobilize a person. Think of the poor guy getting rotten fruit and vegetables thrown at him while his head and hands are clamped between two heavy pieces of wood in the cartoons. Hagar the Horrible. By 1460, it is believed that the Bethlehem Hospital had completed its transformation into a full-blown asylum, the first of its kind and the longest-running psychiatric institution in the world today. At this time in the history of our understanding of mental illness... People believed that any of the abnormal behaviors caused by diagnosed afflictions today was the work of the devil, or a demon. Think of the saying, beat the devil out of it, and you'll see where this is headed. It is thought that the practice of beating the patients began with noble intention, as the keepers of the original priory surely thought they were doing what was necessary in order to cure the ill. But as time passed and the baton was handed from servants of God to hired help, the facility became a playpen for sadistic, quote, basket men. Orderlies, basically, the original men in white, as well as medical professionals of the day who fancied themselves mad scientists of the mind. This was an era in medicine pervaded by the four humors, the four humors being blood, phlegm, yellow bile, and black bile. This theory has its roots in blood sedimentation tests, where blood left out in the open air will eventually break down, exposing four separate parts, believed at the time to represent the four humors. Spill some blood out on your sidewalk for an afternoon, and you'll eventually see a dark clot, which was thought to be black bile, a layer of white blood cells that were interpreted as being phlegm, a layer of clear yellow serum chalked up to be yellow bile, and uncluttered reddish shit that was interpreted as being just plain blood. It was believed that these were the basic substances from which all fluids in the body are made. To round out this belief, the humors were linked to the elements. Earth being black bile, fire yellow bile, water phlegm, and air, as well as all the other elements, blanketed by blood. Deficits in these humors were thought to be the root of mental illness, initially depleted by the inhalation of toxic vapors or absorption of them through the body. I've always thought this myself when working in homes that when I'm breathing in something particularly nasty that that can't be good. And that's what these people thought too. They were as dumb as shit as I am. 
This era of mental health treatment was a far cry from the original spiritual approach that the monks of the Priory doled out. Though these men of God would restrain patients and beat them until they no longer moved, thinking the eventual docility represented a release of a demon, their approach was still closer to what we see as effective today. At least the monks were hands-on. At least they spoke to those who were known as lunatics then. If they could have substituted the beatings with empathy and basic care, maybe some early mental health care progress would have been made, just like if uh, fucking Tesla was allowed to let rip, we would have had cell phones back in 1930. Instead, medical pseudoscience eventually took over, following the idea of the humors, treating mental health care as a problem with the body, a body that needed some fluid or another drained in order to restore a balance, like a car needs an oil change. With this rather humorous approach came an era of torture within Bedlam. Bloodletting became a popular practice. Leeches were often used, but a much more efficient approach was discovered with the introduction of the fleam. A fleam could be used to tap into a patient's vein. It was a triangular-shaped blade that would be placed over the site then banged in with a stick. The result was a blood-on-tap situation. Patients would naturally become less energized after being drained of blood giving the impression that this technique worked. It was frequently used and had no real therapeutic effect, but did work to keep inmates docile as the fleam literally took life from those who expressed their inner torment. Blistering was another technique used to balance humors. A caustic substance would be applied to an aggressive patient's skin as they were manacled. Yellow bile was associated with aggressiveness. So in these cases, doctors would induce infection in the patient to draw what they perceived as yellow bile from the body, another technique that surely kept the more aggressive patients under wraps. Of the remaining two humors, the effect of increased amounts boded well for caregivers. Excess black bile, thought to be produced exclusively by the gallbladder, was responsible for melancholy or depression in patients. The word melancholy literally meaning black bile in Greek. Phlegm was thought to cause apathy, hence the word phlegmatic, which, you know, means a calm disposition. Bedlam was overseen by a master or keeper who was usually appointed by their predecessor upon retirement. An example of previous occupation for one of these masters being that he was a grocer. Imagining my local grocer as a warden of an asylum gives me a chill. Grocers are forced to be friendly all day to those who are usually complaining about a price or an item. They are usually someone who has only had one job their whole lives. They bag groceries at the start and then they moved up, never took a chance. Uh, they make me nervous with their bloodshot eyes and forced friendliness. Put one of these poor bastards in charge of a madhouse and I feel like the goods might get tossed around a little too roughly. Clearly, anyone with the ambition to oversee the asylum had a shot. All research points to this position being a free-for-all for early appointees to steal from funds collected to assist in the care of patients, either through charity from the families of patients or directly from funds allocated by the parish authorities. Ale and bread were a staple, but it was rumored that the basket man or keeper would often take these rations and either sell them or keep them for themselves if the patient was particularly poor and had no one contributing for them on the outside. I should note here that many of the patients were just there for being strange and became even stranger while in bedlam. One basket man was dismissed after impregnating one of the female patients. 
but besides evidence of this particular reprimand, it appears as though keepers, aides, and physicians were free to deal with the patients as they saw fit, which for the aides meant strong-arm tactics and abuse for amusement, and for the physicians meant the freedom to experiment with controversial treatments such as trepanning, a method where a hole is drilled in a patient's head to help relieve pressure, and by some belief systems, let the devil out. This treatment actually has roots in mankind's primitive history, from the Neolithic period, where it actually saved lives by relieving pressure after maybe a club bludgeoning had caused brain swelling. Others in more recent history claim that the procedure of drilling a quarter-sized hole in your head brings about levity, returning those who dare perform the procedure upon themselves to a state of childlike buoyancy and clear-mindedness. Break out the fucking drill, baby. Daddy's going home. The earliest known mention of visitation by the public to Bedlam is a document from 1637 outlining the terms of a prohibition on staff collecting money from the public to get access to the hospital. Bribes, basically. Entry fees. By the dudes at the door. The hospital itself would still collect donations, but the fact that this rule had to be put in place suggests a long-standing issue that finally became too egregious to ignore. In 1681... Forty-five years after this order and five years into the history of what would eventually be the new building at Mooresfield, a ban was put in place to prevent male access to the woman's ward, except in daytime and when accompanied by a female staff. It took another 18 years, 1699 is the date, where the staff were given the authority to deny any visitor who behaved lewdly or in a disorderly fashion. Younger boys and girls were to be shooed from the institution at this time as well if they appeared to be simply spending their time idly at the asylum. So, what can we glean from these rule changes? In a hospital with a history of basket men being relieved of their duties for impregnating female patients, I think it's pretty safe to assume that the predators in this time period and the preceding few centuries had a field day. If you traveled to this hospital with a few shillings jingling in your pocket, you could over a significant period of time gain access to the woman's ward and have a party. Just over 300 years ago, if you were a juvenile delinquent in London looking for a way to spend your day, you could head over to Bedlam and chuck stones at a mentally ill person who was manacled to a wall. The same way that we consider a day at the zoo to be perfectly normal today, although I don't, you know, yelling at the orangutan to move, that guy who always seems sleepy, that beast looks near human, pissed at the situation. Wake up, orangutan, I am awake. Leave me the fuck alone and give me a goddamn banana peel. People at this time gathered their families and headed over to the asylum. It was considered an event in the same category as a public execution. You know, grab the fucking picnic basket. We're going to the show. Patients, often lying in their own waist, would strike back at the heckling public by throwing feces at them only to hear a satisfied roar return from the crowd, thrilled that they had seen the beasts in action. Donald Lupton, a miscellaneous writer of the time, wrote musings of his visit to Bedlam. Quote, it seems strange that anyone should recover here. The cryings, the screechings, roarings, brawlings, shakings of chains, swearings, frettings, chafings are so many, so hideous, so great that they are more able to drive a man that hath his wits rather out of them than to help one that never had them, or had lost them, to find them again. End quote. As ethics evolved at the new facility in Mooresfield, 
Visitation by the public was eventually phased out entirely. It didn't go away easy, however. It took a few great riots from the so-called lunatics, specifically around the holidays where it can be assumed that the public was in greater numbers and in more rambunctious spirit, for the hospital to finally ban all visitation in 1770 and take themselves off the tourist trail. The holdup, of course, was money. I've done some luna math here. In 1750, the visitation practices at Bedlam would have brought in conservatively around 20 grand American per year until visitation ceased. Thereafter, the monies declined to 20 or 30 pounds per year in donations, 30 pounds amounting to around 1,300 Americans a day. A tough financial hit, but more than necessary if the best interest of the patient was ever to be at the forefront. There were people locked up in this place who had nothing wrong with them at all. The early system was corrupt. Masters could be paid to take a family member, or in many cases a troublesome wife or husband, or an unwanted child, into bedlam, under the pretense that they were a danger to themselves or society, where they'd be swallowed by the culture within the walls of bedlam. A culture where, if you indeed went in with your marbles, they soon were snatched by those who had little, or none. Though there is not a ton of information about the early days of Bedlam, this glimpse at the back window of the Dark Topic tour bus gives us an idea. A long tyranny of masters and sadistic basket men and curious public of whom many were there simply to provoke the patients to get a laugh or have a justified handful of shit thrown at them. Like I said, I have worked in modern facilities and know firsthand that all that gets remembered in these places is the negative. I'm certain there were some good people back then as well. Due to the time in which we're exploring here, I have to say, even though to our modern sensibilities, it all sounds pretty terrible. When you look into the way of life back then, it's not surprising how the patients of Bedlam were treated. In everyday life, it wasn't unusual for people to shit in their fireplaces or toss buckets of waste at their windows to be tromped into the muck of the street by fellow passerby who would then tip his top hat at you and bid you good morn. Besides the already low standards of living amongst commoners, these people were dealing with unimaginable PTSD from war and rampant illness. Plague had taken its last swipe at London in 1665 and killed almost a quarter of the population. But that's long past us now that we have vaccines. <laughs> All right. Everyone knew somebody who had died in one of the most excruciating and graphic ways possible. The Black Death. The least of their worries would have been how the lunatics were being treated. I try to keep this in mind when looking back and can't help but wonder what it is about our current systems that will horrify those looking at us through the window of time 500 years from today. Dark Topic is an 1159 media production. To support on Patreon, visit patreon.com slash darktopicpod. For merch, or just to reach out, visit darktopicpodcast.com. Darktopic.